You're listening to the Sustainable and Resilient Cities podcast here in Liverpool. My name is Abby O'Connor. I'm a PhD student in sociology and I'll be your host for this series. Hey everyone and welcome to this week's episode. Today we're joined by Richie Kerwin, a PhD student at John Moores in the Biological and Environmental Sciences Department. Richie's work explores how diet and exercise can affect muscle mass in older people and how this can affect heart health. And today we will, of course, be talking about this in relation to the Liverpool city region and chatting about Richie's recent co-authored article, which explores how sarcopenic obesity has been exacerbated during lockdown. We also might get a glimpse of me attempting to understand science a little bit here, which could be interesting. Hey, Richie, thanks for joining us. Can you start by telling us a bit about your work, please? Hi, Abby. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. Um, delighted to, to get a chance to speak with you. Uh, so what do I do? I'm, um, I'm a nutritionist and a nutrition researcher at, at John Moores. And my research looks at, well, I work with a specific population, and that's people in cardiac rehab. So if somebody in the UK has some sort of a cardiac event, like a heart attack uh, or a stroke, or even they're at high risk of that, they'll get sent to cardiac rehab. And it's usually an exercise-based program that tries to improve people's health through exercise so they reduce the risk of having an event in the future. And what we're trying to do is we are using high-protein Mediterranean-style diets and resistance exercise, so that's training with weights, to help older people increase their muscle mass because we think that there's a lot of evidence to say that increasing their muscle mass will reduce their risk of heart heart attacks or other cardiac events in the future. So in the introduction then I mentioned sarcopenic obesity. Mm -hmm. Would you like me to go into that? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry it's the pronunciation I I don't know whether I'm saying sarcopenic or sarcopenic. Yes can you please just specify for the listeners what that exactly is? Sure. Okay. So sarcopenic obesity is a condition made up of two subconditions. One of those is sarcopenia and the other is obesity. So it's an incredibly originally named uh, condition. And so everybody will be familiar with obesity to some extent. And obesity we know as the excess accumulation of body fat. And that can have a number of negative health effects. The one or the part of that that people are less familiar is the sarcopenia side. And sarcopenia is a condition that was only basically classified as a condition in 2017. And what it is, it's the age-associated decline in muscle mass. So as people get older, they lose muscle. And it's something that happens to a lot of people. And the way I say to people is if you, if you think of your granny or somebody who was older when you were a child, and as you've grown older, you've seen them kind of getting smaller and starting to shrink. That's something that it's, a, it's a quite a natural process. And it occurs in a lot of people, and that's sarcopenia. And it results in a lot of complications, one of the most common being frailty, where people uh, have difficulty in chores of, day, of daily life. Um, and hopefully we'll get into a little bit more detail about you know, the negative effects of sarcopenia. And we think that it's quite common in people uh, in cardiac rehab, so people who have some sort of a cardiac condition, because we think it puts people at a greater risk of a cardiac event. So let's talk about a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic and how what you're researching has become a bigger risk during COVID, so specifically during lockdown. Uh, so, so can you tell us... Oh, sorry. No, no, go on. Tell us a bit about that. Sure. Yeah, so 
when COVID happened, we realized quite early that there were going to be a lot of issues caused by the restrictions that people had to go through for during you know, the confinement or the quarantine that people are experiencing. And what we have seen is that there, we've got some empirical evidence now from uh, smartphone data that shows us that one, people are being um, a lot less active than they usually are. And by a lot less active, we mean people are walking a lot less. So most people's phones have a step counter and step counts dropped dramatically at the beginning of lockdown. We also know people have a lot more screen time so that people are spending a lot time, more time sitting down, looking at their phones, reading or you know, watching Netflix more than likely. And we also, in, in our paper, we also said that there is a possibility people's diets will change as well. And that's because people are spending more time at home. They've got more opportunities to eat. And also during lockdown conditions, people are more likely to stock up on very, very highly processed, very, very high calorie, energy dense foods that are more likely to keep well um, because highly processed foods tend to keep longer than, than fresh foods. And so we said that the combination of a lack of exercise, lack of activity and the increased you know, uh, intake of food would lead people to one, lose muscle mass which you know we, we mentioned already is it that sarcopenia and we think that it's going to be a particular risk for older people who are more likely to lose muscle anyway for a number of reasons and we also think that they're more likely to gain uh, some body fat as well so you've got that combination of sarcopenic obesity losing muscle mass and gaining body fat and and the reason like people will say okay so so what's the point of that like who cares you know, you know, they're not going to go to the beach at any time, you know, uh, this year, you know, does it matter if they've gained a, a little bit of a tummy and, you know, their, their arms aren't as big as normal. And the, the reason it's important is because we know that sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity, even more so, is related to a lot of health issues. One of those is cardiac risk. We know that people who are, have low levels of muscle mass and high levels of body fat are at a greater risk of dying from forms of heart disease. We also know that they're at a greater risk of developing diabetes. And one of the reasons for that is because muscle is one of our greatest uh, or largest disposal organs for, for glucose when we eat it. And if we, our muscle mass gets lower, then we have you know, less place to, to store or to dispose of that glucose. And it's more likely to lead to diabetes. So those would be the most common. But other things that people don't think about or, or are less well known would be the fact that Sarcopenic obesity puts people at a greater risk of osteoporosis. So that's brittle bones, uh, lower bone density, which can result in a, a greater risk of fractures. Puts people at a greater risk of cognitive decline. So people, their brains don't function as well and it can lead to certain things like dementia. Can lead to frailty. And when I say frailty, people, especially young people, don't think of it you know, as anything particularly important because it's not something that they're going to you know, ever think is going to happen to them. But frailty is a serious condition because if you think of it, if somebody is frail, they're not able to do things that they should be able to do in their daily life. And that might be as simple as getting out of bed or getting up from a chair, climbing a flight of stairs, carrying their bags of groceries home from the shopping or even putting their shopping into a, a high shelf in the, in, in the, in the kitchen. And that can lead to depression, which is also associated with sarcopenia. And that can come from, you know, somebody not being able to do their normal tasks of daily life or not being able to leave the house and visit their friends or see their friends. And it leads, uh, we also know sarcopenia is uh, associated with higher levels of death as well, um, it's of all causes. So it's, it's not a good thing. And I, what our paper speculated is that during lockdown, there is going to be a major 
increase in the amount of muscle that people lose, potentially an increase in the amount of fat that people gain. And in the long term, that's not necessarily going to be fixed as soon as we get out of lockdown, because we know that in older populations, it's a lot harder to regain that muscle. So what we speculated is that potentially after lockdown, there is going to be a, a little bit of a rehabilitation crisis where we're going to have a lot of older people who have greatly reduced mobility and are at considerably higher risk of a lot of other you know, really nasty health conditions because of everything that's going on during lockdown. So that's something that we need to think about moving into this stage where, you know, where we're getting out of lockdown if, if we ever actually manage to get out of lockdown. You know. Okay, so then let's, let's think about, let's take those, what you've said there and think about it in relation to the Liverpool city region, right? The local, which is obviously our focus on this podcast. And I do feel like a bit of a broken record because I'm constantly talking about the unequal, the effects of lockdown being felt unequally throughout the country. People in bigger houses, people with gardens, maybe people that live in the countryside and have you know access to green spaces had a really, really different experience to those that lived in cities, that lived in shared houses, in places where they had no gardens at all or just a yard. So is there anything that you guys have seen? Let's just talk a bit about what those conditions, what impact those conditions will have on populations in terms of the health, health risks that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So what you've mentioned is a really, really good point. Liverpool, not everybody lives in the same kind of home or the same neighborhood in Liverpool. And every homestead and every neighborhood is going to have different access to the outside. So for example, like, there are people here living in Liverpool that are you know, living in a block of flats and they don't have a garden to go outside and do activity or they don't have a stairs within their house that they can walk up and down every day to get a little bit of activity. Whereas I'll, I'll give you an example. So my family back in Ireland, we live on a farm. And when I spoke with my family during lockdown, nothing had changed for them. Everything was the same. They had a very, very large farm that they were walking around all day lots and lots of physical activity. Whereas if you're in Liverpool and you're an older person and you are afraid to go outside because you've been told that you're at a greater risk of contracting COVID-19, which is very, very true, you're less likely. So we do know that at times of pandemics, people are less likely to go outside because they're more likely to suffer stress and anxiety about that. And that's one thing that we covered in, in our paper as well. Uh, a lot of the psychological factors and the mental health issues that are going to be contributing to this. So people are less likely to go outside and try and get some sort of activity. Um, also, depending on the neighborhood you live in Liverpool, do you, do, does, does somebody even have access to green space nearby? Can somebody walk from their home to a park? Because not everybody is going to want to walk on their streets where there's lots and lots of other people. But if there's a, a park nearby, they're more likely to go because they've got more space. They're less likely to, to be exposed to an infection risk. So that's something that people have to take into consideration um, as well. And other things that people need to, to bear in mind, it, it's not just, you know, we're, talking, we're not just talking about exercise and, and diet here as well. Everything else that's going on during the pandemic plays a role. So if somebody is stuck in their house all day and they can't get out, they're more likely to be suffering anxiety or some form of mental health issues. And we know that that can contribute to poor sleep. And we already know that sleep at the moment or during lockdown, at least, was considerably different from the way it was before. And when we say different, you know, people say, oh, are people sleeping less? Funnily enough, people were actually sleeping a bit more, but people had lower quality sleep. And we believe that anxiety had something to do with that. And the problem there is that lack of sleep actually contributes to muscle loss 
and it also contributes to body fat gain because it can affect our our hunger hormones it can make people more likely to eat really really you know high carb high fat tasty you know foods and gain body fat at the same time as losing muscle so we've got all of these factors that are coming together and it's almost like this terrible cyclic or snowball effect where people are just you know they're afraid to go outside they're getting less activity their muscles are getting smaller they're eating more they're get, getting fatter and it can be a major issue in urban areas where people just don't have that access yeah. either in their own home if they don't have a garden to go outside in, um, and get some sunshine and relax and enjoy the outside or if they don't have green spaces nearby so these are all kind of things that we need to, to take into consideration I think that's really crucial because I think it really maps out the connections between research on, on health and in medical fields into broader questions about the structure of our daily lives, which is things that have been highlighted throughout the pandemic, be that around space, movement, consumption, access to space, you know, rights, rights of the public to, to have these green spaces. You know, in Liverpool, these local communities have been fighting hard to retain green spaces for a long time, you know, in Kensington Fields, in Calderstones, obviously the... In the park, there was huge petitions with over 50,000 signatures to, to save the park and make sure that housing developments and other developments weren't built on them. And we're really seeing how important that is. You know, I definitely saw during lockdown, um, I went to Sefton Park quite a lot and it was so busy. And, it, you know, anyone that has any sort of health condition or just any sort of anxiety during lockdown, which I think was most people, to be fair, you did feel really anxious when you were there. But that was if you'd live in kind of around Wavertree and in South Liverpool, that's really the closest place for you to go if, if you don't drive and people weren't getting on public transport. And even Calderstones Park was really busy. And I went, you know, at different times in the day to try and find a time that was less busy, but actually that wasn't possible. So older people and people that are more at risk must be feeling even more anxious when they see situations like that, right? Absolutely. And that's just going to contribute to the fact that people are going to be less likely to go there. And if people are going to be less likely to go there, they're getting less activity. So it's, again, it's just a, a snowballing effect. But, you know, when you say that about, you know, the parks being full, like I, I fully experienced it myself as well during the summer. And it's, it's such a pity because they're beautiful parks, but they were overrun during the summer. And like, I, I like seeing people in the park. But when you know people are supposed to be social distancing and they're not social distancing, hold on, they're, they're, that's another an issue with um, public health and you know the 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 public's perception of how they they're supposed to contribute or help with this pandemic that uh, I think the public wasn't contributing to or was contributing to in in a negative way. I think it's really yeah. I mean, I think it's really difficult because like. I'm, I don't want to come across as as a park fascist, but it's the lack of it's the lack of green space that is the problem, right? It's not I it, I I don't want to come across as if I'm discouraged oh, yeah. to go to parks at all. It's just the fact that once again, and I've spoken about this in different episodes, and it's interesting how green space and access to public land keeps cropping up as a key issue. Maybe that's my own research biases, to be fair. Um, oh, no, but, but yeah. it, it's absolutely true. Because like, if we had more parks and we had more places for, to go, people wouldn't all be you know, flocking to, to Sefton Park or flocking into Wavertree or whatever. Yeah. So your article highlights some of the home-based strategies that can be employed to help combat muscle loss. So uh, resistance exercise, you say, higher protein intake, supplementation. And you note that this is something that public health authorities should be engaging with. My question to you is that these, these strategies are costly. They require space, knowledge, understanding. So moving forward, 
and look into the long term. What, what do you think can be done by local authorities to support those who have different access to these strategies? Because I am aware that being able to access weights or being able to access food that's healthier or higher in protein is a privilege, right? That's a, that's a very privileged position that not everyone has access to, especially after a pandemic that's seen so many people lose their jobs. So what can the local authorities be doing to help specifically older people in your research, but anyone that's suffering from these health conditions engage with strategies that will help them moving forward? So, so one thing that we, we mentioned in the article that, that I think is potentially going to be really, really big is telehealth. And telehealth is, is an umbrella term that refers to any type of health-based intervention that's performed over the telephone or via Zoom or Skype or video call. It's not some sort of a teletext 90s or <laughs> early 2000s style uh, service as, as some people might have imagined so telehealth it's very very broad in what it means but for example a, a telehealth service would be something like doing a group exercise class over zoom okay but the first thing that you you need to do if you wanted to employ a system like that is you need to identify who can benefit from that system and one thing that, you know, in Liverpool, and, and I've noticed this quite a lot myself because I go, I go to one of the, um, the Liverpool lifestyle gyms, which is a, the Liverpool Council gyms, and there are a great deal of older people there, which I think is absolutely fantastic because nothing pleases me more to, than to see older people exercising. And Do you go to the one um, at the Mystery? Do you go to the one at the Mystery, the Wavertree Aquatic Centre? Uh, is that what that's called? I do go there on occasion. Yeah, um, I used to I'm go just to. The- to let everyone know that I uh, go to the gym. <laughs> really, I was just dropping <laughs> that. In. I don't anymore, actually. To be fair, since lockdown, which definitely ties into what we touched upon uh, regarding people's anxiety, right, and that having an impact on how people kind of move forward after. So just get, just Sorry, that, I digress that, about that, my yeah. gym. <laughs> so yeah, so uh, and. Yeah, the, I go to the aquatic center and also to the one in Millennium House in the center of the city as well. And those people have usually been referred there by exercise referral schemes. So the council will all have a list or the NHS at least will have a list of people who are going to exercise referral. And one thing that's really, really important is to note that obviously during lockdown, gyms were closed. So these people who were going to exercise referral to improve their health because of a, some form of a health scare now no longer had that option. So one thing, and again, you know, I could speak in retrospect or I could speak about like, here's something that we could do is, you know, when things like this happen, some sort of option should be given to these people to participate in online or telehealth services. And that might be as much as, okay, look, we're going to, we're going to do these classes three times a week. Feel free to join in and you can do, do them from the comfort of your living room. You don't need any equipment at all. Or if you want, we can recommend some really, really cheap equipment. And we covered this in, in our article, some of the cheap equipment that people can go for are things like elastic resistance bands, which can actually offer quite a good exercise stimulus for, for maintaining muscle in, in older people. But the most important thing is just to get people moving. It be, it's because the, the main issue is not that people aren't outlifting weights. It's because people are completely sedentary at this time. People are sitting down. And when we are not moving our bodies... We have major issues with things like insulin resistance and, and insulin resistance causes a lot of problems. It, it, it helps contribute to diabetes and helps contribute to muscle, muscle loss. So some sort of a program to get people moving more. Other options would be outdoor group activities that can be socially distanced. So that might be like 
you know, small walking groups or community walking groups. And they have been shown to be quite good for helping people to increase their activity levels as well. So community-based walking groups where people can go out together in a group of, you know, similar people and still maintain a social distance, but still socialize, which is going to be fantastic for their mental health, but it's also getting them walking. It's keeping them fit. It's keeping them healthy. It's looking after their muscles. So that's another potential option there. And then we also spoke about like, you know, some particularly, you know, like best case scenarios where, you know, if somebody doesn't like, and and you have to think about this, this is a possibility. If somebody doesn't have access to a smartphone or a laptop or a tablet, how are they supposed to do any of this? So, you know, there's the potential idea of being able to subsidize these pieces of equipment for older people. So like, you know, if, if a, commu- a council can subsidize uh, small, cheap tablets to people, that gives them the option to do these classes at home and, you know, do it in a, in a simple way. So th- there's a lot of possibilities. How realistic they are for any particular council is, is another question. And I think it's difficult. And that last point you made really resonates in Liverpool because the city's been so hit by austerity cuts and is so strapped for cash and obviously was on the brink of bankruptcy, you know, in, in April. So I think these things are difficult. And, obvi- and quite often we find that the councils that are the councils that have been hardest hit by austerity also have higher rates of health problems and higher rates of deprivation. They go they go hand in hand which, you know, is something that the Tory government are very aware of. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that right now. But those those difficulties are clear. And so, yeah, moving forward, I think, as you say, it's definitely important to find a balance where we're making sure that people are having access to movement, (laughs) are given the ability to, to move and do all those things. But at the same time, it is definitely something, as you say, it's... You, you have to be realistic. Absolutely. And just one thing I didn't mention there is, so I obviously I spoke about the exercise options. Telehealth can be used to give people, you know, nutrition counseling as well. And we know that at this time, you know, nutrition has taken a bit of a nosedive for many people. And we do know that if nutrition interventions are very rarely successful in the long term, but those that tend to be successful are those that have more contact. So if you can have a telehealth service where you can be in contact with somebody on a weekly basis or on a, you know, every two weeks, you're more likely to have some sort of a positive effect on their eating habits, which can also affect their, their long-term health, you know, and their health down the line too. Yeah, definitely. And education is so important. Right. And I remember when must've been a few, maybe even a few months ago now I have, kind of lost the concept of time when Boris Johnson went on his you're all obese and this is why you're all suffering so bad from coronavirus funny turn that he did individualizing the problem again but I think what people were getting really angry and upset about was that certain people were implying that oh well eating healthier is cheaper and you should just all do it you know I can make a fresh soup for 20p and it's like well that's because you have the pans to do it and the knowledge to do it and the gas to do it and all of these other things and I think education is such a key one you know it it genuinely depends what fa- where how you were brought up whether you had access to that sort of education in schools like my food tech teachers were terrible and if they're listening and I stand by it all we made was bread and butter pudding and cheesecake you know so I think definitely making sure that from an education point of view that if if that's the movement that we're making along diet and that's where people need support then it has to be support that's actually good for them and not top down and kind of a, a blame problem mm-hmm. that, that's that's actually a major issue in the 
I, I'm cautious using this term, but I'll just use it because people will understand what I mean. The obesity epidemic. People are very, very quick to say that, you know, eating less or eating healthier is, is cheaper, you know. Um, and it's not the case because we know that a, a lot of people who are suffering from obesity are from deprived areas and from lower socioeconomic groups. And we know that a greater proportion of their budget, like the percentage of, of their, their, how much money they earn, goes to just feeding their family. So yeah. they have to be very, very cautious with how much they spend. And highly, you know, very, very tasty, highly processed, not particularly nutritious foods are very, very cheap because yeah. oil is subsidized, sugar is subsidized. You know, basically, if you can mix flour, sugar, and fat together, you have something that's incredibly tasty. It's very, very cheap. Uh, it provides a load of calories so people can survive on it but it's not going to be particularly good for or beneficial for their long-term health and it can contribute to obesity in that way. Then you have to think of the, you know, like how, how, how one easy way of making people healthier, get them to eat more vegetables. One, you have to teach people how to cook vegetables because a lot of people just come from households where they're not used to eating them. And then if you're teaching people how to cook vegetables, they need time to cook vegetables. Yeah, um, eat one when people are working exactly. different jobs because they're on zero hour contracts. The very and various other things and that you don't have time to do that that's the one thing that i think a lot of people have been saying you know in the um the sourdough pandemic that swept across during during lockdown where everyone's sat at home baking that's great if you have the time to do that you know i think one of the things that i think many people have realized that working from home has given the, them the opportunity to cook more but that just really shows that it's mostly white collar jobs that were able to work from home and have that time. A lot of other people don't have that luxury. And I think this is, this is the key to it for me. It's acknowledging that these things are luxuries that not everyone has. And then it's looking at how we can help support them in getting them and improving their lives, as opposed to just pointing fingers and saying, you know, almost creating a moral discourse around it. Mm -hmm. No, no, absolutely. Like uh, I, I think the problem with nutrition in, I was going to say in the UK, nutrition globally is it, it is not easily solved and it is very, very much a systemic issue that needs to be dealt with. There are plenty of people who will, you know, play the blame game and say, you know, it's all personal responsibility. And, and to a certain point, if somebody has the luxury of, of being able to make a lot of these changes, then it can be, you know, personal responsibility. But for the majority of people, they don't have that luxury. They yeah. are kind of, the, the, the system is just not in their favor and it's not, encouraging a healthy lifestyle for them neither in in the form of a, a healthy diet nor in the form of exercise habits i completely agree richie thank you so much i'm aware of time now is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap up no i'm just uh, delighted that, to have had the opportunity to speak with you if anybody wants to check out our research you can find our re more most recent article on online it's called if I can remember, sarcopenia during COVID-19 lockdown restrictions, long-term health effects of short-term muscle loss. I will um, put the description in, I will put the links in the description box and I will put your Twitter handle and your email if anyone wants to get in contact with you. And Richie also has a podcast called the Health Scientist Podcast, which I'm sure is much smoother than this one. <laughs> I feel much more experienced if anyone wants to check that out, but it will be in the episode description. Thank you so much for joining us, Richie. It was really fab to talk to you. Thanks, Abby. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you next week.